Good morning. It's good to see all of you today and to be able to join in some good Christmas singing and to gather around the topic of joy as well, which is a blessing. And thanks to Jordan and Micaiah for sharing with us what God has taught them about this theme. Uh, it is interesting how raising children does that, isn't it? Uh, as we begin this morning, I want to turn for our reading in God's Word to the Psalms. And I want to look at Psalm 100, whose words are very familiar to us. If you have your copy of God's Word and you are able and willing, I'd invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. But we'll be looking at Psalm 100, which says this Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Would you pray with me? Father, we are reminded as we read this psalm that one of the things you love to say about yourself the most is that you are a God whose loving kindness is faithful from generation to generation. You cannot change. And so for those of us this morning who are called by your name, we take great encouragement in this, that as we have been called and as we do stand in your grace, so we always shall, and you will ever be our God, and we will ever be your people. We're thankful that we do not need to go into the doors of a temple, up the steps into a city, to draw near to you and to where you have made your presence known, as they did in the Old Testament. We're thankful that your spirit dwells within us, and that wherever we are, there you are with us. I pray this morning you would help us to understand and be renewed and refreshed in the knowledge of Christian joy. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as has been highlighted a few times already this morning, our theme today is joy. We just sang about it. Good Christian men rejoice, and I couldn't help but notice a few of you Christian women were joining in as well, so that's probably appropriate. And uh, I don't have a visual illustration like Caleb to hang off of the front of, of the pulpit this morning, but just like believe shows up all over this time of year, so does joy. It's on uh, the cards. It's... It's plastered on the advertisements, and it comes at us in the lyrics of, of songs over the, the radio in our cars or those thin, tinny little speakers in the ceiling at the grocery store. But I still can't help but feel over the last few years that, at least in our country, we're losing a little bit of our Christmas mojo. You guys feeling some of that as well? It just kind of seems like over the last few years, uh, the... The Christmas enthusiasm is a little bit muted. I, I looked up this last week what are some of the most popular Christmas songs that are streaming around the country. And then I was curious, so I, I, I looked up to see when those songs were written, to see if there was anything going on there. And, and there was some interesting patterns that emerged. Of course, there's that perennial modern powerhouse song. It's usually at the top of the charts. All I want for Christmas is you. That's from the 90s. That was the most recent song on the list. 
Then there's that angsty Christmas song, Last Christmas. Uh, That's from the 80s. But other than those two songs, almost every other song on the list was from the 50s and the 60s, with one exception being from the late 40s. And I know getting a little nerdy here, but here's, here's the point. It strikes me that almost all of the pop culture magic of Christmas that we have on the radio and around us every year is all written as an expression of post-World War II optimism. And that we sort of keep trying to recycle that feeling year after year after year. We're not actually writing a lot of new stuff that sticks. And I think that that optimism is waning. And I would like to interject a thought here on that. Good riddance. That's not because I'm a Scrooge. To the contrary, I long to see our country snap out of the hap- happiest season of all mindset and be reacquainted with the richer, deeper, lasting reality of joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you? And if we want the world to understand that kind of joy out there, then we had better understand it in here. Because they're not going to see it if it's not as a demonstration of our lives. This morning, to direct our thoughts on this, we're going to look at a single verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so you can begin turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. And as you do that, I want to address what I think are probably three different kinds of people here this morning when it comes to our attitudes towards joy. And the first are those who are experiencing true biblical joy. Joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And my goal this morning would be that you would be encouraged and strengthened from the Word of God in that joy. A joy not just for today and for this season, but for the whole year. Secondly, this morning there may be some among us who are experiencing fake joy. And that's either because their joy is an experience that's attached to something the Bible says is not to be the object of our joy. Or perhaps trying to manufacture A joy in no object at all. Just trying to pull joy out of thin air. And my goal for you this morning is to point us from the sources and shades of joy that cannot last to the joy that will feed your soul all year long. And then third and likely perhaps the most challenging category are those who are here this morning for whom this is a very conflicted time of year because of the circumstances in your life that have perhaps made joy a seeming impossibility. And to you, I hope, will come a special blessing as God reminds us of the counterintuitive nature of joy and that it is often most accessible to those whose hurting is greatest. And so if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 13, 6, look look at that with me as we read it. Recall this is in the middle of that famous love chapter. In in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be getting there in our study of 1 Corinthians in a few weeks. And Paul is now showing this is what the controlling motive of the Christian life is meant to be. This is how we live that out practically in our lives. And so in the midst of all of that, he says, A Christian controlled by Christian love, verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 
And we'll hear a lot more about the love part of that next week when that's our theme. But for this week, I want to focus on the rejoicing aspect of this verse. And I want to make three observations about Christian joy, about our joy. And the first is this. Christian joy is not deceived. Our joy is a joy that should not be deceived. Paul writes, those controlled by love do not rejoice in unrighteousness. It is a distinguishing mark of Christian love to have a determined refusal to rejoice in anything that is not righteous. And that might seem like something that should go without saying, but I think it really does need to be said. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil all try to hype us up over things that we shouldn't be rejoicing over, don't they? We can turn to idols all year long. That's, that's easy. But I think in Christmas time, it can be a season where we tend to put even more expectations than usual on our idols. We're trying to get more from them than usual. And I think that can make this a season of particular disappointment and hardship. Kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm old enough now to say, like, I remember when. <laughs> I know for some of you, you don't afford me that credit yet. But I'm a youth pastor, and so I'm a fossil to them already. I remember when you would get in the mail those toy catalogs. And this was before the era of Internet reviews. And so your appreciation of the toy was entirely based off of its advertising. And you would see this toy, and it looked so amazing. And you'd see it on commercials on the Sunday, Saturday morning cartoons, and you'd say, Wow, that looks like so much fun if I only had that toy how much more joy could I possibly have than to experience that thing? And then perhaps there was that year when everything came together and that toy ended up under your tree. And you opened it and you took it out of its package and you were like, wow, this thing's kind of a piece of junk. Right? It looks so, so detailed, intricate in the advertisement and the paint's off and it doesn't have half the pieces that were in the picture and it's smaller than I thought and the plastic is cheap and I don't know how to make it work right and it doesn't seem nearly as fun to play with as, as the people in the commercial made it look like. And I think as Christians we can get caught up into that, whether it's our, our own desires of the flesh, whether it's the things that our world is marketing to us, whether it's the devil and his schemes, we're constantly being drawn to and we're being enticed by things that say, here is joy, here is joy. And then when we get them, we realize that's really kind of disappointing. And so I want to ask us, what are we counting on for our joy this year? Is it in the things that are, that are obviously or even sneakily contrary to what is right and what is good and what is true. I mean, there's, there's the obvious ones. This can be a season marked by, by gluttony. And I don't mean feasting, because feasting is a good thing. But I mean something where you, it is a consumption that is broken from an appreciation and gratitude for the one who gives. And this can be a season of excess and, and selfishness. It can be a season that can be marked by drunkenness, taking things that can be good gifts in one context and taking them to a sinful level. And we make excuses for it because, well, it's Christmas. It can be a season marked by materialism, not getting presents, but seeking joy in the gifts independent from the gift givers and the ultimate gift giver. And I think for many right now, it can also be a season where we're struggling because our idols in the world, our earthly saviors are disappointing us, whether those are political saviors or economic saviors or cultural saviors. 
and we're frustrated and we're disappointed because all the Jesuses on the planet are not living up to their promise. Then there's just good old-fashioned planes in. This can be a season, for example, where people cross lines with boyfriends or girlfriends chasing that wonderful, elusive Christmas romance that's on all the movies. And did you know you can buy Christmas pride flags, buttons, pajamas, or stockings this year? We can be drawn to try to find our joy in that which is just overtly sinful. But I think there's also more subtle ways in which we can get sucked into a rejoicing in what is ultimately unrighteous. How about the pride of appearances? Trying to prove that we are good people by getting all the holiday decorations and preparations and gifts and cards and our our trendy winter outfits and our bright smiles all just right so that we can impress other people. Or even the idolatry of family trying to create that perfect moment where all the people are in the perfect place, feeling the perfect feelings, not to be a blessing to them, but to try to get from them and from that moment what we are only meant to get from God. Whether it's pursuing obvious sins or even indulging in good things for sinful reasons, Christian joy refuses to attach itself to anything unrighteous. Which doesn't then mean that Christian joy just sort of closes its eyes and tries to pretend that all the broken and evil things in the world don't exist. Because not only does Christian joy stay away from all the deceptive forms of joy, Christian joy is also not naive. Secondly, this morning, Christian joy is not naive. I wonder how many this morning of us are crumbling under the pressure of trying to manufacture joy out of thin air. Because that's what Christians are supposed to do this time of year, right? You know, when when you watch a movie or you read a book, the creator of that content often wants you to sort of let go with what you actually know is true of the world. And, and, and enter into the fiction of their work. I think we call it suspended disbelief. You just kind of, everybody's supposed to sort of wink and nod at each other and say, I know that's impossible, but let's just pretend it is possible for a little while so we can have fun, right? That's how Iron Man works, right? Sometimes I feel like even as Christians, even as the church, we get to this time of the year and we're just kind of trying to squint our eyes and imagine that the whole world is a Hallmark movie for a few weeks. If you are being careful not to attach your joy to anything unrighteous, you cannot help but notice just how much unrighteousness is out there. A heart that protects itself from false joy is a heart that will be only too keenly aware of how broken this world is. I think in many ways Christmas should highlight how dark our world is. As we consider the birth of Jesus, it should remind us, however sharply and starkly, why he had to come to die in the first place. And if we listen well, we will see that this theme has been woven into the fabric of the church's Christmas hymns from the beginning. I opened a hymnal uh, at home this week, and I thumbed through to the section on, on hymns about the birth of Jesus. And Every single hymn spoke to this. 
Jesus came to win us from all sin within us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Come thou long expected Jesus, as we sang this morning, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow and on and on and on it went. Lyrics like that are not a bug. They are a feature of Christmas songs. Because Christmas joy is not naive. Christmas joy is a joy that rejects the false promises of unrighteousness and refuses to live in the fictional clouds of sentimental naivety. Does that then mean that Christian joy is a future reality? If we will not rejoice in that which is unrighteous, and if we do see just how broken and dark the world is, does that mean then that we have to wait, that Christian joy is reserved for the future when sin is no more and the world is made new? Will you know the answer? Of course not. Joy is for today, whatever sort of day you are having. And it isn't meant to be a small joy either, but a great joy. And that joy is, as Paul writes, a joy that rejoices with the truth. Our Christian joy is not deceived. Our Christian joy is not naive. Our Christian joy, true joy, is in Christ believed. Notice that when Paul says that Christian joy, that the joy that comes from Christian love rejoices with the truth, he makes a subtle shift in language. When he steers us away from rejoicing in unrighteousness, he reminds us that Christian love cannot rejoice in unrighteousness. We take no joy in any object that is against the character of God. But when Paul switches to the positive, he calls us to rejoice, notice, with the truth. And he uses a special construction there in the Greek to intensify that call and underscore its importance. We are to be exceedingly joyous, as one translator put it, not just in what is true, but we are to objectively be standing with that truth. We are not just a witness of it, we are a participant in it. And that participation, that alignment of ourselves with what is true, that is the reason for Christmas joy because that is what points us inevitably and continually back to Jesus Christ. If you trace the theme of joy back into the Old Testament where many of the over 400 occurrences of joy and its related words are found, you will discover a pattern. Joy throughout the Old Testament centers around God's grace. It centers around God's signs of favor to his people. Joy is found in God's provision of harvests and food. Joy comes from God's presence among his people in the temple. There is rejoicing when God defeats his enemies and joy again when God brings his people back from exile. 
and rejoicing when the people of God think of the new creation and the new Jerusalem. Do you see the, the repeating pattern there? The joy we read of in the lives of God's people from creation all the way up to the New Testament is a joy not connected to their accomplishments or to their immediate circumstances. It is a joy that is connected to a faith in a God who covenantally loves them and will bring about their salvation. The scholar Matthew Miller quotes David Hart who observed, joy feeds on what it receives the christian joy is a joy of receiving this is summed up beautifully and poignantly in the words of habakkuk or if you prefer habakkuk one of the last of the minor prophets in your old testament you can follow along on the screen with me habakkuk is as all the prophets were dealing with the judgment of god and trying to tell the people why? Because of their covenant unfaithfulness, judgment is coming. And yet in the midst of that, they wrestled with, what does that mean for us and our relationship with you, God? And, and as Habakkuk wrestled with the severity of God's judgment, he came to realize even behind that judgment is a God whose covenant love and faithfulness cannot ever fail. And notice how that gives him joy even when all the circumstances are bleak. He writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. And notice that's not exalt as in to lift up with praises and declare the truths of God. It's exult with a you, meaning I will be euphorically ecstatic that I know Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, even when, as he just wrote, there are no external signs of that salvation that he can see. It should not surprise us that in the New Testament, the primary word for joy or rejoice shares a common root with the words for gift and grace. Christian joy is inseparable from the gifts and the grace of God, independent from our circumstances. And there is no greater gift and there is no greater grace than what we have received in Jesus Christ it is he himself that makes the truth a place of blessing for us and not a curse. It is likely that the writings of Daniel have been studied for hundreds of years in the East as generations of men watched to see when Daniel's prophesied signs would appear in the heavens to guide them to the great gift of God, the birth of the King and in the New Testament, when that sign finally appeared, we read this in Matthew 2.10. When they, the wise men from the east, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's hard to translate that verse. It literally says in the original that they rejoiced to joy mega very much. I think sometimes you just render it that way. They were beside themselves. 
as all of the things in the Old Testament for which there could be joy finally were coming to pass in the person of the king. And it wasn't just the wise men of the east. Later on the very night when Jesus was born, angels appeared to shepherds on the low sloping fields outside Bethlehem. And to them they proclaimed, Do not be afraid in Luke 2.10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Again, you could translate this literally as, Behold, I am gospeling to you mega joy. Now, you notice it's Matthew 2.10 and Luke 2.10. So maybe once you see someone who's feeling a little down, just ask, how's your 2.10 quotient? What we have received in Christ is so worthy of rejoicing in. It will never not be a reason for mega joy. We may have days when happiness eludes us. When the feelings of elation and euphoria are impossible. But there will always be at the ready the steady, deep optimism of the soul for the one who stands with Christ. Because that kind of joy, as we know, is a supernatural fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we look at the supernatural work of our supernatural Savior. That is Christmas joy. That is Christian joy. And it is a joy that, as Peter tells us, is not only fireproof, it is in fact fireproofed. In the book of First Peter, Peter writes to a church that is fretful. They see storm clouds of persecution approaching. It'll be about two years after the books of First and Second Peter are written that Nero's persecution breaks out in full force. And they can kind of see the warning signs coming. And Peter writes to the church to encourage them as they're spread around the ancient Near East. And he wants to build up their faith to prepare for that season of testing. And notice right off the bat in chapter 1 how Peter is pulling them back to the work of Jesus Christ and to their joy in that. And so Peter writes in verse 3 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Peter opens up with this amazing salvo of theology about our salvation and of all that awaits God's people in heaven where the security of God's promises are being protected by the power of God where our salvation will be fulfilled at the proper time no matter what happens down here on earth. But notice how in verse 6 he's going to take all the truth of that and pull it down into our present experience. Look at verse 6. In this, in what? The truth of what Jesus Christ has done and who we are in him and all that is ours in him. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he says, this is a cause for rejoicing because it is objectively true that when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has promised us, that as we go through the trials and difficulties of life, it proves that what he said is true as he sustains us and carries us through those things so that when he comes back, our lives will be this testimony to the faithfulness of God, more precious than gold ever could be. But he's not done yet. He's then going to tell us what it's like to live this life of faith. Look at verse 8. I love this. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. And this is where Peter tries to do his best Paul impression. And stick as many adjectives as he can together. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What does Peter mean by joy inexpressible? Well, if I could tell you, it would be expressible. I readily admit, I know very little of what that actually means. In God's sovereignty, he has not yet taken me through a season of life that has held me close to this truth. But I know he has for some of you. I know some of you have experienced a joy you cannot put into words because it cannot be put into words. That's Christian joy. It's a supernatural joy. Our series is called The Mystery in the Manger because there are things here too wonderful for language to bear the weight of. And one of those things is the joy God gives to his children in their suffering because of what Christ has done. This Christmas, we should rejoice those of us who stand with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we realize this morning perhaps that we have rejoiced too easily, let us not be content with any joy in any lesser thing that is not an extension of our love and faith in Jesus Christ. And if perhaps you came in this morning and you have found rejoicing too hard then let us be reminded that God's gift of himself does not erase our hardships, but that those very hardships will reveal that God's gifts are better than we could imagine, that his salvation is irrevocable, that his comforts are real, and that for those who pass through the fire, they will not be consumed, but they can in the flames experience a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Brothers and sisters, let's build our Christmas around this. If you're going to bake cookies this year, and I hope you will, let them be an expression and not a distraction from the goodness of Jesus. If you're hanging your Christmas lights, and I hope you can, let them be an expression and not a substitute for delighting in the light of the world. 
Nothing we've discussed this morning should take away from our feasting and our celebrating and the enjoyment of the season. Don't hold back on Christmas. Celebrate with gusto, but remember what it is that we are celebrating. We aren't celebrating lights and trees and cookies. Those things are merely tangible external manifestations of the mega joy that we can experience all year long because we know and stand with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If your house is decorated with elaborate garland or if all that you can muster this year is a simple Charlie Brown tree, the joy of Christmas can be ours in equal measure because the gift of Jesus is given to all without partiality to those who will receive him. And so if you are here this morning and you have yet to take your stand with Jesus, I would invite and beg you to do so. Come and see that he is good and that he is mighty to save. That we are all sinful and broken people is pretty self-evident. But Jesus came that we may have life in him through faith. And that faith is simply acknowledging that God really did send his son into this world as a baby in a manger. And that Jesus grew up and lived a sinless life of perfect righteousness. That he was crucified as a sacrifice for sin. And therefore God can justly grant forgiveness to those who will call upon him. And our faith does do that. It says, I do call upon you, God, forgive me because of what you've accomplished in Jesus and I will turn from lesser joys to follow you and you alone. And if you will do that this morning, then for you are the words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples the very night before he was crucified when he said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Receive his joy, would you? And if you do, at a germ-safe distance, would you tell me that this morning? (laughs) I don't want to give you my cold, but I want to know and rejoice with you what God has done in your life. Speaking of the night in which Jesus died, that does bring us to our time of remembering that death in communion. And I invite you to take and prepare your elements. we saw how the New Testament opens with two different declarations of mega joy at the coming of Messiah. After that, do you know when the next time in the New Testament you see the phrase mega joy is? I'm going to swap and try this cup. It's the women who were the first to see the empty tomb and run with mega joy to tell the disciples that Jesus is risen from the dead. We cannot observe Christmas and the joy of Christmas without being mindful of just how heavy a price was paid for that joy to be ours. And it is a heavy kind of joy captured in the words of a communion hymn for Christmas with profoundest wonder we your body take laid in manger yonder broken for our sake hushed in adoration we approach the cup Bethlehem's pure oblation 
freely given up. Before we take these elements, I would invite you to take a moment in silent prayer to recall and to express gratitude for the fact that the roots of Christian joy are deep and go back to and draw their very nourishment from the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, as we ponder the death of your son, I cannot help but think of the words of the old hymn, what language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For indeed, our joy in Christ is is inexpressible. It is not glib, it is not shallow, it is not passing. But even as the death of Jesus Christ stands forever, as the unshakable reality and historical truth that changes the arc of our eternity. So we marvel at it week after week. And though we cannot fully understand it, yet it captivates us. And we pray this morning that you would give to us the experience of a joy that is produced by your Holy Spirit this Christmas season. That our love for you would grow deeper that our resolve to imitate you, to show you off to a dark world would be increased, that you would show us in our lives where we have contented ourselves with lesser things, and that because of our love for Jesus Christ, you would fill all the little things in this world with deep meaning and significance for all to be an act of worship and nothing to be an idol. And this we pray in the name of our Savior who gave himself up for us. Amen. Would you take with me? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And all God's people said, Amen. As we're dismissed, would you stand? And sing loud so that you mask my voice. This gift of God will cherish well that ever joy our hearts shall fill.